I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to episode 21 of The Hilo, the weekly news and pop culture podcast brought to you by writers Dolly Alderton and Pandora Sykes. Do you think we should celebrate it like it's a 21st birthday? No, because we celebrated its 20th birthday. It's going to get old if we do it every week. 21's a big one. We should take it to to Mahiki. That's where I went. (laughs) But I don't want to know anything more about what you did when you were 21. Also, apologies for my summer flu. I hope I don't sneeze on you. That's not meant to be a haiku. That sounded like Dr. Zeus. (laughs) I know. So we're back after a break. I went on holiday to Mallorca last week. It was a proper basic bitch holiday. It's really good. We've now got to a point with our group of friends where we just all lay our cards on the table. And what those cards say is we would like to just lie, turning ourselves like rotisserie chickens under yeah. the sun, reading books and drinking pina coladas. And that's what we did. Pina no coladas. one even pretended like they wanted to see any culture. Pina coladas. Yeah. Three o'clock Ooh. pina colada o'clock every day. Make my stomach roll. Which is great. And you did some reading while you were there. Finally. I did do some reading. What I... did you enjoy? I loved Conversations with Friends by Sally Rooney. Ah, uh, yes, you see, because I was not totally phased by that, but it has had amazing reviews. What, what, how did you find it? I think I just got a bit bored. I, th- I found the tone... It was, it was very long. ...tone really flat. Nothing really happens. I felt like it was trying to be something sort of more poetic. It had all these aspirations, I thought. I just didn't really believe in it. I loved it, but I agree with you that I did get... The story was very long the narrative felt quite stretched out but I just thought it was such a beautiful funny true authentic I mean she's been absolutely heralded I am I am the only person I've encountered who didn't think it was very good the thing that I thought was its real strength is the way it showed the complexities of relationships because every time I read books about relationships I never see really my behaviour or my anxieties reflected in those stories. And there were moments within this story where it's like they're kind of playing cat and mouse with each other, these two characters that are sleeping together. And there's this long period where that's in like instant messages and you're reading his instant messages and he's suddenly getting really cold. And then she responds by being even colder. Then he asks a question because he needs her attention and then she draws back. And then, and it's just, it's so frustrating to witness. But as someone who's been so embroiled in that, as I was reading it, I was like, I can feel the stomach churn of what it would be like to be in that kind of interaction with someone that you've just started being intimate with Um, and I just have never felt it so viscerally before so I loved that I've started reading about halfway through Eleanor Oliphant is completely fine yeah it's brilliant that isn't it which is great it's taking me a while to click into the tone it's first person and the voice is a very eccentric female voice I think it takes a while to to, you have so much more to come I don't want to give anything away really yeah by the end, you are 
I can't say anymore. Okay, but I, your sister as well, Anna, said that it's one of the most accurate descriptions of loneliness she's ever yes. read, and that's been a kind of ongoing thing I've read in reviews. And you do really it's palpable, and it is very funny. And also, even the small bit I've read so far, there are really sour pangs of sadness that just suddenly hit you like a big mm. wave mm. that you don't yeah. expect. No, totally. And then I am about ten pages off. Um, finishing Faithful, which is Marianne Faithful's memoir. Can you go and update your Goodreads shelf? Because on our currently reading shelf, eight of the books are yours and two are mine, and you've been apparently reading the same eight books for four months, and I don't believe in this shelf anymore. Go and file them away to, into Want to Read or I will. Read. I will do that today. Thank you um, very much. But Marianne Faithful's memoir is one of the best memoirs I've ever read. Oh, really? Yeah, it's really you love memoirs. good. I love memoir, and I love... For anyone who's kind of really... Upset? Were you about to sneak? I, I don't know what was going no, on. No, she's yawning. She's, she's <laughs> bored. She's not ill. She's bored. Um, uh, it's. I'm someone who's really obsessed with that period of music. I'm mad about the Rolling Stones. Um, I'm so intrigued and seduced by the idea of uh, London in the '60s. And something that this book does really well is it picks apart all the mythology of the 60s and music at that time and what the role of a muse is and the reality of what it is when you become a muse because that's always been like my big dream is to be a Marianne Faithful and someone to write like wild horses about me and then when you read it it's a very very dark very um sad very tragic story and that she's the great thing about it is that because Marianne Faithful's name was dragged through the mud so horrifically, and I really think she was one of the first examples in 60s London of slut shaming in media because the Rolling Stones, Keith and Mick, behaved in a certain way with drugs and sex, and they just became more and more impossibly glamorous. And she she was a complete pariah and the only good thing about that is that she lost everything she ended up as a heroin addict living on the streets of Soho and it means that her reputation is so sullied that now when she writes this memoir she's got nothing to lose so she tells the most in the most painfully honest truth about herself and the scene at the time so it's a very shocking but very very brilliant memoir so that's what I've been reading I'll tell you what I've been watching Trini Woodall's Instagram. Oh, I think I've heard about this. I think I've heard that she has a sort of Instagram page akin to Jerry Halliwell. Have you ever seen Jerry Halliwell? Yeah, I like Jerry's. Jerry Halliwell does a video. My friends do amazing spoofs of it where she just goes, I'm on a train. Yeah. And then you look at her looking out the window on the train for 15 seconds. Yeah. What does Trini do? So she's adopted this incredibly strange voice where she kind of, she only shouts and speaks very fast and kind of apropos of nothing, she just turns up on location so it can be like her in a, in a town square in Italy and she starts shouting about whatever clothing item she's wearing that day and why she thinks it's so brilliant. In fact, Charlie, I would like you to play my favourite clip if that's okay. Buy of the day is this fab jumper from French Connection. It's so tricky to buy a white jumper. I always find them too boring or the colour white is wrong. And it's kind of one of my perennial classic searches and I found it. I like the neckline. It's not a round neck. It's not a roll neck. It's in between turtleneckish. And I'm going to wear it with uh, this rather delightful French Connection bag, navy and white. 
How chic. Everything actually there is quite chic. I'm just obsessed with it. And it's made me go down um, a Trini and Susanna hole as well. Well, have you seen that book's been shared a lot on social mm. media again in the last few years? I love that And it's book. amazing, like Trini sort of bending over with a butterfly thong poking out of her <laughs> jeans, telling you that that's the right way to flash your underwear. Or Susanna, like, hoisting her tits into some terrible top and then Trini point and going look they look like bricks or you know yeah. what's so funny is it's very honest though I like the way they do I don't always agree with their fashion choices but I like the way that they really do show that you can absolutely change your body mm. um, well, by dressing a certain yeah, by dressing and also way. they but it's so funny because I remember watching it as a kid and remember Susanna as being this like unbelievably sort of happy Jake's from yeah and I look back and she's like a size 10 woman with a great rack I'm like I can't believe in my head that's what you know because they marketed her as that it's always been it's always been a great fear of and maybe hope Pandora and I that we would end up as the next Trini and Susanna (laughs) I don't even need to ask who's who This week I've been reading Run by Anne Patchett. I'm slowly working my way through all her books after reading Commonwealth. And I'm also reading a little book called Everything I Know About Love (laughs) by my friend Dolly Alderton. Um, Now, before you go, can we buy it? You can't buy it yet. I'm a VIP, so I've got an advanced copy. Um, She's literally reading the Microsoft Word document. She sent it to me on my phone and I was like there is no way on earth I'm reading this on my phone I'm too old for this shit so I printed off the whole thing and put it in a sort of ring bound folder like I'm back at school and I'm on page 33 and I'm very much enjoying it and that's friendship ladies and gentlemen (laughs) I also really enjoyed which I read since we had our last podcast an interview by the journalist Polly Vernon with Ethan Hawke I saw Polly shortly before the interview came out and she told me that he was her favourite celebrity that she'd ever interviewed. And he's such a a rare breed in Hollywood. He's really honest and self-deprecating and sort of um, absolutely lived that long life. He, there's just no bullshit. And there's this amazing quote, which I want to read you, which I love. And Polly said she herself is obsessed with it. If you want to make a lot of money, there's a certain amount of dick you have to suck. There are rings you have to kiss. That's a more polite way of saying it. If I did kiss the ring... I didn't kiss it enough. <laughs> That's that. a brilliant quote. I know. A journalist must be jumping for joy the minute an interviewee says something like that. I think that's probably why he was her favourite ever um, yeah. interview. We got some great emails off the back of a discussion we had about North Korea a couple of weeks ago, which was in reference to a Sunday Times magazine piece that we recommended about the assassination of Kim Jong-nam. And we've had two people email us with the same book recommendation. It's called Nothing to Envy by Barbara Demnick. Kitty says it provides a real insight into what day-to-day life is like in North Korea, whilst M calls it one of the most compelling pieces of literature I've ever read. The author weaves together the history of North Korea since its birth in 1953 up to 2009 by telling the personal stories of six real-life defectors from North Korea. It's powerful, beautiful, tragic and truly unbelievable, to say the least. Barbara Demnick was a journalist for the New York Times and for a time was the South Korean correspondent, which is where Nothing to Envy began. The book was published in 2009 and although a lot has happened in the last eight years in North Korea it's still remarkably relevant this sounds awesome thank you very much gals I shall buy me too Support for the Hilo comes from our elegant and therefore obviously French sponsors. This week I'm going to talk about their precision lip liners, which make a very good pairing with the Power Matte lip pigments we mentioned in the last episode. 
The lip liners provide budge-resistant colour and laser-focused precision, and they come in 26 colours. Now, in all honesty, I thought my lip liner days died in the early mid-noughties when I used to emulate members of All Saints with a sort of beigey, thick lipstick and a kind of brown lip liner around. Um, <laughs> and because of this horror show, I've um, been put off using them. But whenever I have my makeup professionally done, the makeup artist always uses a lip liner first, as not only does it make the lipstick last longer, but it gives a really gorgeous shape and definition to your lips and your cupid's bow. So I think I'm going to try the Tan Rose, which is a subtle pinky kind of nudie brownie colour to go under and around my lipstick. And they are £18. NARS is offering Hilo listeners two deluxe travel-sized freebies when they make a purchase online at narscosmetics.co.uk. Simply type in the code HILO, H-I-L-O-W, at checkout and you'll receive a mini audacious mascara and mini velvet matte lip pencil in Dolce Vita, one of their best-selling pinky nude shades. Some more very exciting news. The Hilo are doing a live event in London this month in association with NARS. The event is part of the Beautython, which is happening all week. We are going to be in the NARS Covent Garden store on Wednesday, the 23rd of August. There will be a cocktail bar, which you will find me propping up for the entire <laughs> evening. And there will be a NARS cladded GIF booth. Don't know what that is, but it sounds very exciting. And the session is from 6.30 until 7.15. It's an in-conversation-with event with me and Panda, and we are going to be talking about our changing relationship with makeup over the years. NARS will be providing goodie bags for all guests, and the tickets are £30, which are redeemable against purchase. To book your place, call the store on 0207 836 6366 with your credit card details or email the store coventgarden at narscosmetics.eu. So that's all happening on the 23rd of August. It's a 45-minute talk kicking off at 6.30 in their Covent Garden store. Tickets are £30, and you can call 0207 836 6366. Dolly will see you at the cocktail bar. I think it's time for the top line now, Pandora, which is ten pieces of news read quickfire with a very natty little music introduction from our producer, Charlie Jones, a.k.a. DJ CJ. And I'll see you in the high and low In the high and low I'll find you This is the top line. Supermodel and activist Natalia Vodianova is fronting a new campaign called Let's Talk About It, period, to mark her investment in period tracking app Flow. Flow has 10 million users. In parts of Asia, only 12% of women have access to sanitary products, Natalia commented. Taylor Swift won a symbolic $1 this week in her case against Australian radio host David Mueller after she says he put his hand under her skirt and onto her bare butt cheek in 2013. Taylor has long been passionate about exposing the inherent sexism in showbiz. In 2016, she gave Kesha $250,000 to fight her case against former producer Dr Luke. A vegan cafe in Melbourne is charging their male customers 18% more, calling it the man tax, to address the gender pay gap. Money raised by the handsome Her coffee shop goes to charity. The Aparathaus Paradies Hotel in Arosa, eastern Switzerland, has been condemned for its hotel signs addressed only to Jews. To our Jewish guests, women, men and children, reads one, please take a shower before you go swimming and after swimming. Another sign asks that Jewish guests do not access the communal refrigerator too often. I hope you understand, Jewish guests, that our team does not like being disturbed all the time, it read. Manager Ruth Tommen said she was naive and has removed the signs. 
A new report published by the Equality and Human Rights Commission has demanded that there needs to be increased flexibility at work, especially in managerial roles, where a third of businesses do not allow part-time work, to help women stay in the workplace after having a baby. The EHRC also calls for better financial incentives for paternity leave to encourage more fathers to take time off. After claiming that he'd rather slash his wrists than play Bond again, Daniel Craig has confirmed that he will play Bond in the next film in the franchise out in 2019. Underground poo patrols have been dispatched to Holy Trinity Church Graveyard in North Devon after the woman who cuts the grass complained that she had been hit in the face by dog mess 156 times. Church volunteer Erica Castle says that she's taken to wearing goggles to prevent faeces flying into her face. The North Devon Council has promised to crack down. The government has ruled that there will be no border checks between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland when Brexit comes into force. Instead, there will be a customs partnership though no one knows what that is or what it will look like. A 12-year-old contestant on Channel 4's Child Genius, named Raoul, has gained notoriety for his IQ of 162, which his father says is the same as Stephen Hawking and Albert Einstein, and qualifies him for Mensa. Raoul knew that the scientific name for an apricot was a prunus armienuca. <laughs> I think I'm a genius, agrees Raoul. It turns out that you've been saying Primark wrong. Primark have clarified on its website that it isn't Primark or Primark, but Priamark. And that is the top line. What do you make of the vegan cafe? I think you'll be in support of it where I'm... Where, oh, interesting. I'm a bit eye-rolly and I thought you'd be in support of it. I like that the money goes to charity. But if yeah. I was a guy, I would not be like, excellent, I shall go in there and spend 18% on my coffee because that's man tax. I just think, oh, for God's sake, go to the next one. I just think it's a bit... Ugh. They're not giving vegans a good name. Everything that I, I was su- everything that. I suspected of vegans is being confirmed. <laughs> Sorry, that is a little joke, and I'm allowed to make it because I don't eat meat. Um, <laughs> I have um, many friends who are vegans. Um, I really, I get the idea, um, and I do I think it's great that there's that's going to charity. I just think there are just better ways of flagging up those issues, and there are better ways of raising money. It's just a bit silly, I think. Silly. And I'm a very look. I'm a very silly person. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm a very silly. Vegetarian. I'm queen of silliness, and I'm a silly vegetarian. And even I think this might be a little bit silly. Um, I know you're not a fan of Taylor Swift, but you cannot tell me that you don't think that's quite good that she gave a quarter of a million to Kesha last year. Yeah, I, I had brilliant. no idea. Yeah, until I was reading about the case. I'm also very amused at Daniel Craig doing this 180 about the bond. Apparently, he was joking when he said he'd slit his wrists. Oh, sure. I find it best joke that Helen Barbara Broccoli, my favourite name of all time, must have forgiven him. Barbara Broccoli. That's the name of the Bond, like the Bond producer or the owner. (laughs) Yeah. How do you not know that? I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, Helen Nianius did a very funny tweet today. She said, "Daniel Craig's selflessness in reprising a role he described as worse than slashing his wrists is truly inspiring." I hope one day that we can all find it within ourselves to accept a room at $150 million in exchange for a few months of filming and promotion. (laughs) Holy smokes, that can't be what he's being paid. I mean... No, come on. If he said he would prefer to slash his wrists and then suddenly does a 180, I think it would take a lot of money. I don't think anyone's ever been paid $150 million for a film. Not even Johnny Depp for Pirates of the Caribbean, which somehow seemed to bust all budgets out of the water. Very good. It's the biggest and most shocking story to come out of the last week. 
In a right-wing rally on Saturday in Charlottesville, Virginia, organised by a right-wing journalist named Jason Kessler in a protest against the removal of a Confederate statue, a speeding car drove into counter-protesters, killing one woman named Heather Heyer and injuring 35 people. In total, three people were killed at the rally in Charlottesville. So this is obviously a clear case of racism. But what we'd like to talk about today is the cultural response to this since it happened on Saturday, um, which has been at times shocking. Primarily, not least, of course, Trump's repeated refusal to blame white nationalists for the tragedy at the rally. I think there is blame on both sides, Trump said again on Tuesday. You had a group on one side that was bad. You had a group on the other side that was also very violent. Nobody wants to say that, but I'll say it right now. He went on to say, I've condemned neo-Nazis. I've condemned many different groups. Not all of those people were neo-Nazis. Not all of those people were white supremacists by any stretch. He criticised alt-left groups that he claimed were very violent when they sought to confront the white nationalist and neo-Nazi groups that gathered in Charlottesville. You may have seen that we retweeted a tweet from the pop star Lord, which has been dividing opinion, in which she apologises to Charlottesville, because we wanted to hear your opinion on it. Lord tweeted, I just want to say I am so, so sorry. All white people are responsible for this system's thrive and fall. We have to do better. I'm sorry. I think that was a really useful thing for her to tweet. Well, we retweeted this, obviously, on on our platforms and asked you to share your comments, not just particularly on our accounts, because actually the responses were fairly balanced, although there was nuance between them. But that has been a very divided response across the internet. So the responses we got on our Twitter, so Kelly says, this is a bit like blaming Muslims for terror rather than a barbaric minority who have horrified people of all colours. I 100% agree with Lord, says Sophie. All white people benefit from structural racism in a way that people of colour cannot. People of colour can't topple it on their own. White people must help. Also totally agree, says Yasmin. It would be impossible to be white and not benefit from structural racism. Racism is a problem, says Nicole. It doesn't mean that every white person is racist, although she adds that Lord could have explained that better. We need to stop blaming entire communities for the act of an individual, says Charlotte. I agree with Sophie on this, and I agree with... Lord and and that tweet, I understand exactly what she meant. Yes, a small minority of white people are violently racist, white supremacists, but the majority of white people, and I include myself in this rather uncomfortably, have either consciously or structurally in the course of their lifetime made judgments or decisions that are racist or have failed to call out or stop racism. And that unfortunately means we are not doing good enough. And it means we're feeding into a much larger poisonous ecosystem in which people of colour are still seen and treated as largely subordinate to white people, which is exactly the sort of world and ecosystem in which an incident like Charlottesville on Saturday can happen. And if white people wring their hands and fail to see that this is a collective, a societal problem, rather than Lord saying we're all as bad as those Nazis in Charlottesville, they are completely missing the point. And also this is just not our moment to be offended. I agree with a lot of the responses we got. Um, I actually can see value in a fairly varied spectrum, but that's because we had pretty balanced responses, Mm. unlike a lot of what's proliferating on the internet. Um, So, for example, one tweet, they're not Nazis, just disaffected young men asserting themselves, but this type of name-calling pushes a lot of us farther right. Well, that sounds about correct, doesn't it? That's our fault. This is our doing. Poor disaffected young white men sad about their Confederate statue coming down. It's like, go and fight, and you fucking fight. 
I do think there's a danger in blaming entire communities. Um, part of me really understands where people are coming from with that. But I also think we have to continue to sort of almost quite forcefully enforce this idea that structural racism does not mean mm. that you are racist. Yeah, and as you say, this is not personal. This is not our moment to be offended. A young writer who's writing I'm really enjoying right now called Charlie Brinkhurst Cuff wrote a piece for Dazed about the hashtag This Is Not Us, which has been circulating in the aftermath. She says, It's important to show solidarity during a time like this, but not through separating yourself from the problem. We all know that this is not all white people that want to harm us so directly. But for a lot of white people, the admittance that they are in any way associated with these young white men and some women who are being radicalised into a hatred of a definable other is too much to bear. I do get it. Recognising one's privilege is fucking hard and it can send you into a guilt spin where you try and justify your way out. But it's always useful in taking a step back, examining the causes of all types of terrorism and trying to counter them. Your white privilege is not a comment on your character, just as my light skin privilege as a mixed race person isn't a comment on mine. That's a brilliant quote. Since I read Rennie Edo Lodge's book, I just keep thinking back to that incredible thought that she puts forward, which is that white people, a lot of white people, still seem to think that being deemed racist is as bad or even worse than being on the receiving end of racism itself, which is just boggling. Some interesting responses to Charlie's piece on Dazed, actually. One man wrote... But isn't saying this is not us the right way? By saying this, we don't distance ourselves from white supremacy, but from the white supremacists, which obviously is a white group of people with a racist mindset. By saying this is not us, we say that we don't agree or tolerate their actions and mindset towards people of colour. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that this is a way of publicly saying no to white supremacy. And in my opinion, it's one way to shape our society into something more anti-racist. I can see the thought process behind this. And of course, you want to distance yourself and express empathy. But I think as ever, this just comes back to our understanding of what it means to be personal within the collective we're generation sensitive generation i i i yeah, exactly charlottesville is not about you or me but it is about the victims and their families and we're so so sorry but it's about society it's about humanity and again and again we are confronted with white privilege so acknowledging your white privilege doesn't make you racist it makes you someone who wants to change the system it doesn't mean as some people like to say fine then I won't say a word if I'm just this racist bigot you know say that you're annoyed you ran out of avocados or the local coffee shop doesn't have any skinny flat whites I mean fuck Dolly and I do that all the time. But acknowledge that these are micro problems bolstered by the white privilege that we enjoy. You know, as two white, privately educated blonde girls, we don't need to worry when we walk down the street. Our only worry is literally, I hope I don't get catcalled for wearing this short skirt. I agree with you. And I think the sooner we realise that ending racism goes so far beyond not taking a literal torch to a white supremacist march that's not enough that doesn't give us the luxury of sitting in an ivory tower of morality recognizing as white people where we hold agency and then using that power and using that voice that we have to act out against injustice from the tiny everyday moments in life to the larger national or indeed international incidents I think it's brilliant that Lord tweeted that. I think it's just another reason to love Lord. Yeah, I, I actually don't love that tweet from Lord. I get what she was saying. I think it was brave. I think there were better ways to express it, not least the zero grammar in it. Um, but I think that she has definitely raised a very interesting conversation. It does make me think, though, that I 100% don't think that racism will end in our lifetime or no. even the next lifetime. No. But do you think this would have happened if Trump hadn't been in power? 
And do you think this will affect his popularity? Because he is absolutely shown I don't think it would have happened without him being in power and I do think he's shown he doesn't understand the nuances of racism or care I think he thinks two sides to every story I think that he um, put another nail in his coffin in that press conference last night I think it was an embarrassment and actually loads of Republicans have actually started speaking out against him and apparently he did it against the advice of all his aides as well so I think he's just lost I think he's getting closer and closer to exploding into the kind of unself-aware egomaniac mess that he is and I think he's on the brink of losing all his support. So the month begun with him congratulating Emmanuel Macron on the architecture of his wife (laughs) and and ended with him essentially denying racism. The most astonishing moment for me came and the most Trumpian moment I think of his presidency thus far came last night. Did you see the moment at the press conference where um, bearing in mind this is a press conference about the murder of an innocent woman and a violent white supremacist rally he still managed to give a plug to his winery in the local area where the event took place <laughs> oh my dear god can we insert that clip yeah I'll send it okay, to DJ you. CJ's going to find that clip for us so we can all be outraged together I mean I know a lot about Charlottesville Charlottesville is a great place that's been very badly hurt over the last couple of days I own I own actually one of the largest wineries in the United States. It's in Charlottesville. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. A 20-year-old British model who was allegedly kidnapped by a gang named the Black Death Group in Milan with the intention of selling her as a sex slave has been accused of collaborating with her alleged abductor. The Guardian reports, Chloe Ayling, 20, told Italian police she was attacked by two men as she attended a photo shoot on the outskirts of the city in July. She says she was then drugged and transported in a bag to an isolated village near Turin. 30-year-old Lucas Powell Herber, a Polish national who lives in Britain, has been charged with kidnapping and exhaustion. He reportedly told Ayling that he had planned to sell her as a sex slave on the dark web for £270,000 before he realised that she had a two-year-old child. After six days holding her in captivity, he took her to the British consulate in Milan. Ayling described the kidnapping, saying she was injected with the horse tranquilizer ketamine before waking up in a car boot, wearing only her underwear, with tape over her mouth and her hands and feet bound. She says he never sexually assaulted her, although he threatened her with death, cuffed her to the bed and sent various ransom requests. Eventually, she was released with a note on her alleged abductor's computer stating it was a huge generosity from the Black Death Group. Doubts of her account have been raised since she was spotted during her time of kidnap shopping and casually eating with her alleged abductor. She has said that this was because he told her that if she tried to escape while under his imprisonment, that she would be instantly killed. Bizarrely, a ransom note was also sent to her agent in which 50000 pounds was demanded with an assurance that the ordeal would kickstart her career so it's a very complicated and strange story i'm really fascinated by this story not least because it really does feel like there's something missing 
But also, I'm fascinated that we live in an age now where authenticity is at such a premium that we have come to question even what sound like the absolute worst crimes. It reminded me a little of the story of Karen Matthews, who pretended her daughter, Shannon, had gone missing. The idea that Chloe would fake her own kidnapping for notoriety is hideous, but I think it does say a lot about where we're at in society, that the truth is so flimsy and people will do anything for that elusive Warholian moment of fame, um, regardless of the fact that we still don't know if she did or didn't you know, fake this. Part of the criticism comes from Chloe not behaving like a victim. Is mm. it misogynistic to victim blame in this instance, do you think? Absolutely it is. And I do think it is a gendered issue. I think particularly as she's a young woman who also happened to be pursuing a career in modelling, the easiest thing would be to say that she's attention-seeking, that she's duplicitous, that she's trying to get her career off the ground I think we hold women up to a standard of perfection constantly and we don't even get off the hook when we claim we've just been kidnapped and drugged and threatened with death Mm. and you know apparently there is still a completely correct way to behave in these situations there is a protocol of how to be the perfect victim and if you don't comply to it completely then you're called a liar it's like we have this finite amount of respect and time and sensitivity and care that we allot to assaulted women and they only receive it if they behave in a very certain way if they look a certain way if they say certain things and I think we just see this time and time again and we've said it before I just think that the default has to be that but we that we believe the victim until legally proven otherwise. I've seen Chloe on telly a few times this week because, as you know, I'm a fan of morning television. I think it is the salt of the earth. And my I love ins- that you watch My it. insight into real women. Uh, on Lorraine on Wednesday morning, Christine bleakly probed Chloe as to why she wore what she wore when she faced the press after returning on British soil, which was a cleavage-flashing slip dress. Just a slip dress, but you could see a bit of cleavage. Why she came on TV in the first place. I mean, you guys asked her to, but okay. And also, if she was going to go away quietly now. So you won't do, say, Big Brother? Christine says really tentatively, and Chloe demurs and says, no, she's done now. Um, I felt really uncomfortable watching this, partly because I can't really get a handle on the story, but also just really concerned that a victim isn't allowed to smile um, or she's guilty. Often people smile when they feel scared or uncomfortable. A friend of mine, Mary, actually bursts into uncontrollable giggles when she hears something sad or horrible. And it's also worth noting that in the case against Taylor Swift this week, the defence tried to discredit Taylor's claim, which you can see in the picture. You can see the DJ's hand up her skirt because she was smiling in the photo call picture. Now, one of her alleged friends, Bianca, um, has suggested that Chloe did fake this to go on Big Brother because she herself got an opportunity to go on to Big Brother and she told Chloe that you have to do something really pressworthy to get onto it. Um, obviously, that makes things slightly more murky, but do you believe Chloe, Dolly, and does it matter? Um, well, I watched her break down in tears on her interview on this morning and personally, I didn't feel for a second like it was a performance, but to be honest, that's an incredibly imperious and patronising thing to me for me to say because mm. it's not my job to sit there like an X-Factor judge you know, waiting for a reaction that I feel correctly portrays authentic victimhood. Therefore, she gets to the sort of next round of 
sympathy. <laughs> None of us know how we were, as you said, you know, referring to your friend who has that strange reaction when anything bad happens to her. None of us know how we would respond or react in event of trauma. Um, and actually, I watched Eamon Holmes gave a very impassioned speech off the back of that this morning interview, defending her um, and slamming viewers who'd written in saying that they didn't believe her account or that they felt like they didn't ask her hard enough questions. And he said she's a young woman of 20 who was understandably incredibly shaken up and perturbed by her ordeal. And actually Ruth Langsford, who's the co-host, um, chipped in and pointed out that everything that, that she has claimed and claimed in that interview uh, matched up to police reports from the ketamine that was found in her system to the puncture wound on her arm. And that's not something to ignore. Twitter's absolutely full of people questioning her. Namely, it focuses around the fact that you can see her cleavage. 100% don't believe it. No one who's been in that position goes out dressed like that, posing like a page three model, tweeted one person. And Chloe actually has said that she got off a flight and her friend told her to take off her jacket because she didn't have time to get changed. Uh, Another tweet. The last time I saw a girl behave so bizarrely after a traumatic event was Amanda Knox. This girl is faking it. Shame on her. And then there's that friend, Bianca, who said, I told her what happened with me. I auditioned for Big Brother five times. And then I did this documentary where I slept with over 300 men and Big Brother contacted me and put her in. She knows this. If you get in the press, you'll get in Big Brother. That is her dream gig. So there are iffy things about this. Chloe has mentioned a book deal, for example. But what kind of precedent does it set to establish if someone is a victim or not based on what they are wearing? It, it really chimes with rape culture. Yeah, and we might find out that Chloe's not telling the truth. But regardless of that, that precedent will still have been set mm-hmm. where it's OK for morning television hosts to question someone's motivation in leaving their house in a dress or smiling. Yeah, exactly. I think it also chimes in with this huge problem that we have that I've mentioned on the podcast before about these binary terms of good or evil. Yes, absolutely. Which John Ronson talks about in his research into public shaming. And it's as if we've reached this nexus whereby people are held to one thing they do or wear or say that completely defines them as either a cartoon villain or a cartoon superhero or prince or princess and there's just no room for anything in between and there's and by making that judgment it means that there is therefore no room for listening there's no room for curiosity there's no room for genuine empathy and as pandora mentioned of course this case is is bizarre and of course there are questions that i'm sure will be investigated by police in due course but in the meantime i just think it's our duty to listen to accounts of survivors with compassion rather than knee-jerk demonising judgment that, as you said, it just adds to a a really dangerous culture of victim-blaming. And also, I think as well, with, um, to refer to that big old thing, the internet, there's no such thing as, like, an anonymous victim now. Mm -hmm. Anyone who's named in the papers, it's rarely, like, a school picture. It's something that's been plundered from their Instagram. I've seen pictures of in news articles where a woman has died and they've taken a picture off her Instagram where she's, like, smiling and wearing a bikini. And and the tone is so wrong. I mean, you know, if anything ever happened to me, they would be able to mine this vast <laughs> morass of of pictures and articles and cobble together exactly the kind of character that, that they thought yeah. I was in order to determine the veracity of yeah. my crime. They'd find an image that absolutely matched whatever they decided they wanted public opinion and that's to what, be. And that's what I think is really difficult. And the other, the other side to that as well 
is that, as I said at the beginning, that we now do live in this time, you know, this bloody fake news time where you just have no idea if anything's true and we also live in a celebrity obsessed reality tv time and i enjoy reality tv like the next person but the amount of like reality tv celebrities we now have mm. whose only career is to be a reality tv star is terrifying and chloe may absolutely be telling the complete truth but there will be other men and women who are not and i'm just scared to see where this kind of conflation of all these different issues will will end up or whether or not we'll be questioning crimes for forever I just think it's really important to remember that someone can be a desperate wannabe who is desperate for fame and, and wants a victim. to be a brother and have been drugged and kidnapped like there is yeah, a world absolutely. in which both of those things can happen absolutely do let us know what you think we can't always reply to your emails because we're lazy sorry because we're busy <laughs> um, but we'd always love to hear what you think and do tweet us we actually prefer Twitter to email yes we do The High Low is sponsored by Sainsbury's Home Sainsbury's Home prides itself on delivering high quality products at high street prices. Sainsbury's Home has a dedicated in-house design team of 14 that includes expert creatives from all across the design industry and 80% of their product is designed in-home. Customers can shop for Sainsbury's Homewares in over 400 stores nationwide and over a third of people can access Sainsbury's full non-food offer within a 15-minute drive. As Sainsbury's Home likes to say, it's the little things that turn a house into a home. Dolly, I know that you are particularly obsessed with Sainsbury's Home's Moroccan Luxe range. Have you ordered anything for your new home from Sainsbury's Home? I have. I got the gold cutlery set and I've only had a few dinner guests. Oh yes, how did it go without a table? <laughs> the table's finally in. But they all loved my gold cutlery, so thank you very much Sainsbury's Home. Thank you Sainsbury's Home, making Dolly happy in her new home. <laughs> time for ask the high low don't forget to email us the high low show at gmail.com even though we've just been quite rude and said we prefer you to tweet us at the high low show we also enjoy a good old-fashioned email dolly do you want to kick us off with the question this week hi pandora and dolly i love the podcast and i hope you could help me with an issue i've been having at work i have a colleague who i work with closely every day who i would first and foremost call a friend we work on a small team of two in which we often share tasks and we are in a similar position at work as well as people the same age However, I've started to really resent the way she talks to me and about me. It feels like she's always making barbed comments or making me the butt of a joke. This is my first job out of uni and it's really affecting my behaviour and attitude. I just want to curl up into a ball. She uses everything I say about life, love, family against me. It's got to the point where I want to quit. I know that if I was ever to say anything to her, she would be completely baffled and wouldn't see what she's doing wrong. What can I possibly do in this situation? Have you ever had a similar work friendship situation that you've gone through? so horrible that I know I really feel for her I've definitely had work situations that I prefer not to dwell on I've never had someone I mean that's just bullying isn't it mm. I don't think I've ever had someone bully me so overtly but I've definitely worked with people who I felt like always wanted me to know I was never good enough mm. I, you know I don't know I was never cool enough or I was never this enough or I was never that enough mm. um, or you say the wrong thing or you know sometimes I think that can come from within mm. I've definitely been, I'm not suggesting you have done this, I'm just exploring all things around it. Um, I have definitely been guilty of manifesting situations in my head, letting my sort of anxiety and paranoia run away with me. Yeah. And thinking that there's something much more personal in a situation than there is. Um, 
But I hate that idea that you're trying to keep close to her by sharing stories about your family and that you feel like she's using them against you. It's a really difficult one because part of me thinks that this is just life. I know that's awful. As a woman, you're going to meet other women in the workplace that you just don't trust. And maybe this being your first job is a good time for you to realise this really unfair and sad truth. Chat away to her, but don't give her any ammunition, don't give her any leverage, and don't let her kind of into your heart in that way. Tell Mm -hmm. her stuff that if she's going to use against you, you really don't care. Mm -hmm. And maybe try and learn from this, because I I think it will make you stronger in work environments. Mm -hmm. My earliest experiences in jobs which did not go well really informed how I behaved in future jobs. What would you say? Um, I have two thoughts on this. The first is, if you hadn't said she was your friend, I would say exactly what Pandora said. I would say get some rock fucking solid boundaries in and just don't give this woman anything of yourself. You know, everyone I think at one point in their 20s realises that perhaps it's easier in life to keep work and personal life separate. I have most of the time found that. That's um, why we don't talk outside of the studio. Pandora and I will talk for an hour every week in the studio. As soon as we're out of the studio, Charlie has to separate us. Yeah, we go yeah. goodbye and then we get on I different trains. <laughs> um, but in terms of like an office environment, sometimes I think it is good to learn a lesson where you get too close to someone and you think oh maybe I need to keep these things more separate however you did say that you had a friendship with her something that I would like to but is it a work based friendship yeah maybe because then but maybe but I got the feeling she thought they were actually friends Mm. something I'd like to flag up that I think is something that's very close to me in Pandora's hearts and it's something I've had to learn and I've only just realized now I'm cool about saying it in my late 20s I think that we live in a world of sensitivity shaming. And I think the thing that you said is that if you said to her, by the way, you're kind of hurting my feelings or I just want to check if I've offended you in some way or whatever, that you're really worried she's going to turn around and be like, oh, you know, get over it. Stop being so sensitive. It's completely fine to be sensitive and it's completely fine. Obviously, you can't make a fuss about everything. You can't be self-absorbed and you can't be neurotic, but it's completely fine to take her to one side and be like, hey, dude, I know I'm probably more sensitive than you are. And if I've got the wrong end of the stick, I completely apologise. But I just wanted to flag something up. Um, Have I upset you in a way because I feel like you're reacting to me in quite a strange way? Or do I annoy you? Or have I done something to wind you up because I do feel a bit hurt by you at the moment? And it's completely fine to say that. It doesn't make you a loser. It doesn't make you a crybaby. It's completely fine. Do you know what the issue with that is? I think that's great in theory. But if I had ever tried to do that in the past... I'd have practiced it with you mm. and I'd have said it like that and then I'd have gone to the friend, I'd have gone bright red and I've gone, I just think the thing is... And then you've got that person going, are you okay? Mm. So it's great to do. It's really bloody hard to say it in that like, just to let you know voice. Mm. And that's the problem and then you're sort of showing more weakness and they're feeding off that. Um, I think it's okay to flag and go, look... Don't email. No, don't email. But I think it's okay to flag because people do act differently. No, I think it's okay to flag. I think it's very difficult to say it in that pragmatic way and not in this very emotionally charged way whilst they're standing there placid and implacable as anything, thus enforcing the, the kind of dialogue between you. Yeah, but what I would say is that it's good to flag up by saying... 
I'm aware that I may be more sensitive than you because that is life I've realized like I've had exchanges with people before where they think that our dynamic is completely cool and we're completely fine and I've gone home and been really upset and Mm. when I've talked to them about it I've realized oh my god we just operate differently and I just am taking stuff to heart that they Mm. don't mean or whatever and then it's good because once you flag it to her unless she's a monster she hopefully will say I'm so sorry I'm just saying that as a joke I didn't realise that you didn't get that's my humour or whatever so it means you become more accustomed to her tone and you realise it's not about you and then hopefully what she does is think okay well I just have to be slightly gentler with her and then it means that you start again and you're more aware of where you both are coming from and hopefully that would be really helpful there is another um, idea as well is that you could get some more work pals they don't have to even necessarily be your age. They don't have to be your BFF. In my last job, I did I did make a best friend, mm. um, not just you, Dolly. Um, out, out <laughs> did of, you mean me? Out of Flossie. But um, I would have honestly been absolutely fine had I not made another yeah. best friend at work again. So look for other people. As I said, yeah, they don't have to be your age. They don't have to be girls. They don't have to be, you know, just someone that you enjoy saying hi to in the morning that you can occasionally go and get lunch with. That would be yeah. the first thing is, you know, get some other people around you. And second, thing is do you sit next door to each other because it might be worth having a chat with your HR and just saying might be too intense I I sit next to a girl who is really not very kind to me and I think it's affecting my work performance and I wondered if subtly there could be any other change in the arrangement and then with some physical distance between you you know you can get away with having lunch once a week Mm. chatting to her briefly and gradually you can create that distance where you're not chatting all the time and you're not therefore giving her what you feel like is ammunition to use against you. Because that is horrible, and it's horrible to feel really vulnerable at work, and you definitely don't want to quit because of this. No, and as you said, if this isn't like a really close brothers-in-arms relationship that you would be really sad to lose, if you do feel like you just want to get to a point where, as Pandora said, you can just get on with your work and feel feel comfortable... Just give her less. Well, this is what I was going to say. I remember my flatmate, when I first moved to London, she was working in a in a really challenging um, school, secondary school. And she said to me once, I said, do the kids know anything about you? Because she was really young. And she said, no, they don't know anything about me because they can be so cruel that if they knew anything about me personally, yeah. it would be too hard to take. But because I go in with miss smith shiny veneer on that this is my professional mode they can say whatever they want to me and it's water off a duck's back because they don't i haven't given them anything personal and obviously you don't want to do that at work you don't want it to be like a military front but everyone i think at work especially when i think about you and i with our editors or whatever you don't give them everything because that would be inappropriate and it makes you too vulnerable you also have to remember as well that people only know what you want them to know exactly they only know what you share so you're not obliged to tell them how you're feeling or, or the you yeah. know the, the minutiae of your life. But that's a very... I don't know how old this listener is, but that is a very early 20s people-pleaser thing, isn't it? That you I know, and we don't, we don't mean that patronising. No, no, no. It's only that we were both so there yeah, yeah, yeah. seven years ago or whatever I, I it was. And, I, and that's just... why I do think it's actually quite a good lesson because this will happen again. And if you can overcome this, you'll find it so helpful in future endeavours. Yeah, and I've only just got over that I got over it later in life but I definitely had that people pleaser thing where I felt like I had to tell everyone everything about my life in its most embarrassing detail to try and bring them because closer. then it will endear them yeah yeah and you just don't need to do that you are enough as you are just doing your great work and saying hello to people and having a cup of tea I think that's them. a nice way to end the high low you are enough as you are 
Thank you very much to Acast for letting us use your studio. Um, Lauren Benster, thank you for the funky tune. Don't forget to let us know what you thought of the episode by rating, reviewing and subscribing on iTunes. Helps shift us up, makes the podcast more popular, makes more people find us. We want a Christmas number one. Yeah, I mean, we want to get rich. Come on, guys. (laughs) Bye-bye. Bye.